Well, I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 7 as we continue walking our way through this series on Mark's gospel. This message in this morning is entitled, Where the Rubber Meets the Road. One of my favorite pastimes is people watching. Anybody else enjoy just watching people? People are funny. They're odd sometimes. And so I've been known to go places and just watch people. You go to the mall, you go to the outlet mall, you go to Walmart. There's some good people watching going on when you go to those places. I mean, there's times when you look at someone and in your mind you're thinking, do they have a mirror at home Do they see what they look like? There's times when you're watching a couple and they're in the middle of a fight. There's times when you see all kinds of things going on. My favorite was not too terribly long ago. I watched a mom who was in the middle of disciplining her child and she pulled out of her purse a wooden spoon. And I relived my childhood in that moment. I was a wooden spoon kid. I'm a wooden spoon survivor. Anybody else like that here this morning? But watching people is really pretty interesting. And what I want us to do this morning, if you'll indulge me, is I want to invite you to do some people watching with me as we walk through the text this morning. In fact, we're going to see four groups of people and how they respond to Jesus, And as we walk through that, as we see those people, well, there we go. Let's turn those back on, Jay. Thank you, brother. As we look at those groups of people, I want us to recognize that in the room this morning, there are believers, those who've trusted in Christ, there are those who have not yet. And I want us to look at these groups of people and to ask some questions of ourselves as we walk through that this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write down these parallel passages. These are passages that go along in other gospel accounts with what we're going to look at this morning. So you can write down Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You can also write down Matthew chapter 12 verses 15 through verse 50. And then Luke chapter 6 verses 12 through verse 49 in your own time with the Lord. I want to encourage you this week to look at those passages that go along, and uh, I hope that that will be an encouragement to you and your walk with the Lord as you do that. I want to read Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through verse 12, and then we're going to begin to unpack these groups of people and how they responded to Jesus. This is what Mark writes in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is God's word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out 
You are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we would be able to see, that you would open our ears that we would be able to hear, and that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. The first group we encounter in these verses that I just read, this first group is the crowd. And I want you to know this morning that they were primarily interested in using Jesus for what they could get from him. The crowds that gathered around, Mark notes for us in the text that they were interested in Jesus primarily because of the mighty works that he was doing because he was healing people, because he was casting out demons and setting people free from that oppression, that this group was primarily interested in what Jesus could do for them. We see that Jesus, even in the midst of that, is recognizing that these crowds are crushing in around him and actually tells his disciples, hey, let's prepare a boat in the event that we need an escape hatch as the crowd is pressing in so that they do not crush us. The crowds, as we've said, as we've been walking through, were primarily interested in what Jesus could do for them not primarily interested in who Jesus was. We've said from the outset that Mark has a specific aim in this gospel account of Jesus's life. He wants people to recognize two things. He wants them to understand clearly that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior that they desperately need, and that he is the Son of God that their only hope in this world for forgiveness, for life abundant, for life eternal, is through Jesus Christ alone. And yet, unfortunately, the crowds were losing sight of who Jesus was. They saw what Jesus could do. They looked at him primarily as a vending machine to fix their problems. But they weren't interested in Jesus for who he was. First church I served at, I was a student pastor, and we had a new worship pastor that came on staff at the church. And he invited me to lunch one day. We were about the same age, and I thought, wow, this probably is going to strike up a good friendship. This is going to be wonderful. And so he said, let's go eat tacos. I'm always up for tacos. So we go to the Mexican restaurant, and we order our meals, and the waitress brings them out. We're talking, we're eating, and then it comes time to pay the bill. And the waitress comes with the check, and he said, wait. He reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a buy one, get one free meal at the restaurant. And he said, this will cover mine. And I realized in that moment, he wasn't interested in me. He wanted me to buy a meal so that he could get his meal, what church? For free. The crowds were not interested in the reality of who Jesus was, the Messiah, the Savior. They were primarily interested in what he 
could give them. You know, as we think about that this morning, I know that gathered in this room, there are people who are not yet followers of Jesus. And you may have come in today, you're trying to figure things out. You're trying to understand who is Jesus and what is he all about. And maybe in your mind this morning, your thought is, my life is a mess. My marriage is on the rocks. My kids are crazy. I'm probably about to lose my job. My life is falling apart. Maybe I can come to Jesus and he can give me what I want. Maybe he can fix those problems. Maybe he can solve those issues that I have. And I want you to hear me this morning. Jesus is more concerned with solving the greatest problem that you have, and that is a sin problem, than the others that are in your life. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about those, but what he knows is that before those things can be solved, you have to recognize and understand the reality of who he is. I'm so glad you're here this morning because what we are doing as we're walking through Mark's gospel is shining a spotlight on who Jesus is. And my hope and my prayer is that what you may have come in expecting, that is Jesus to fix your problems, you'll recognize just how beautiful and how much of a treasure Jesus actually is. You'll come to him, not for what he can give you, but primarily because of who he is. Let me caution us as followers of Jesus in this room, because if we're not careful as well, we will come to Jesus primarily for what he can give us. We don't like to say that. We don't want to pull the curtain back and to show the truth of what's going on in our hearts. But if we're not careful, we'll often come to Jesus primarily for what he can give us, primarily seeing him as a cosmic vending machine to give us what we want. And yet I want to call us this morning as followers of Jesus back to the reality that Jesus Christ himself is the great treasure. That we come to Jesus not for what he gives us. We come to Jesus for who he is. We see in the text, first and foremost, the crowd who were primarily interested in using Jesus. But I want us to look at verses 13 through verse 19 this morning. And I want to see the committed who were primarily interested at least on the surface of following Jesus. Notice verse 13. It says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boernages, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
It's interesting that at this point, and if you work through the passages of Scripture I gave you early on, you'll know that as Jesus calls these disciples to himself, and as he calls them to fulfill the mission that he's going to give to them, in that period, we see in Matthew's gospel account that Jesus at that point is going to preach the Sermon on the Mount in the midst of that. And so Jesus, in this moment, we see him call 12 apostles. And I want you to notice in verse 14 how he calls them. First and foremost, he calls them to himself. He calls them to himself. And then he calls them to the mission. That is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to also demonstrate his power as they cast out demons, as they perform many mighty works in his name. Now, it's interesting when you look at this that this is not an impressive group of people. In fact, as you look at Jesus' disciples, many of them were just a bunch of ragtag guys. They weren't those who would impress very many people. In fact, there were some oddballs in the mix as well. You have Matthew that Pastor Cody talked about last week that was a tax collector that would have not been well received by most of the others that were in the group. Not only in the midst of that, you have someone who is in the group that's also termed as a zealot. This was someone whose primary interest was overthrowing the Roman government. And Jesus says to him, hey, come follow me. And then, of course, we see Judas. Mark's very clear. Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus. As you look at what we would term here, those who were committed, I just want to call your attention to consider a couple of things with me this morning. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus and, and you're looking at this group. I want, to, I want to caution you with something this morning. I want to caution you with the idea that Jesus is primarily interested in you doing things for him. Because Jesus is primarily interested in doing something for you that you cannot do for yourself. You cannot save yourself from your sin. Every single one of us has a sin problem that we cannot handle on our own. In fact, the reality is we need someone besides us to fix that problem, and his name is Jesus, the sinless Son of God who came to this earth to lay his life down for you, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, securing salvation for you. Hear me this morning. Jesus is primarily not interested in what you can do for him. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this morning what he can do for you. In fact, I want to also point out the fact that you have in this list a guy who ultimately is going to betray Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to recognize very clearly what's going on with Judas here. 
Jesus calls him to himself. But what we're going to find out is the reality is Judas is not interested in following Jesus. In fact, Judas is primarily interested in what following Jesus can do for him. Other passages remind us that Judas was the treasurer of the group of disciples. It reminds us that he was primarily interested in enriching himself by following Jesus, quote unquote. But how dangerous to look at someone like Judas and realize that you can do all of the things that the other apostles did and yet not have a relationship with Jesus Christ at all. Hear me this morning. You can come to church. You may have come to church for decades. You may have served as a deacon. You may be a former pastor, but the reality is you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've done a lot of things in Jesus's name, but you actually don't know him at all. Say, pastor, I'm not sure that that's even possible. Is that something that could be true? Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, verse 22, Listen to this, and I can think in the midst of this, he knows Judas and what Judas is ultimately going to do, and Jesus says this, that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And listen, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, and I will look at them and say, I never knew you. Hear me this morning. Just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you serve in church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. The issue is, if you come to the point in your life of recognizing you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can save you from your sin. Jesus isn't interested primarily in what you can do for him, but what he can do to transform your life. You know, as we look at this, we're also reminded as followers of Jesus how hard it is to walk a life of obedience with the Lord. Because as you look at the names that are listed out here, you realize that they struggle at times walking out their faith. They struggle. Sometimes they're on the mountaintop, but oftentimes they're in the valley. Oftentimes they're struggling as they're seeking to walk in obedience to the Lord. I mean, just think about it. You have Simon Peter, who's named here, who would deny Jesus three times. After Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times, and he says, Jesus, I would never do anything like that. It's the same Simon Peter earlier that Jesus would look at and say, get behind me, Satan. Then you have James and John, who he describes here as the sons of thunder, to which you think that sounds like what I want my nickname to be. But realize that 
They receive those nicknames on the back end of them coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, look at this crowd that's around you. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and turn them into a potato chip? (laughs) The sons of thunder. And then you look at Thomas. If you've been around church very long, you know him as Doubting Thomas. Thomas, who was not sure, didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead and said, I'll only believe if I can put my fingers in in nail-scarred hands, if I could see it with my own eyes, then I will believe. And think about this, church. This is the group that we would say is committed. I just want to remind us as followers of Jesus here this morning that we must gear up for the journey of the Christian life ahead. It is not going to be all roses moving forward. There will be difficult seasons in our lives. There will be challenges that we will bump up against. But the good news that we're reminded of is who Jesus is. That he is our treasure that he promises to us never to leave us or forsake us, that we have the privilege of walking with him day in and day out. I want you to take note in verses 20 through verse 21 of the third group, as we're people watching through Mark's gospel this morning. We're going to see the concerned. Notice how Mark describes them in verse 20. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family was concerned about him. They were primarily concerned with rescuing Jesus from himself. Notice that everything that's been transpiring, that people continue to come to Jesus and his family is sitting back going, listen, he's lost it. Listen, all of us have that one family member that when we get together, we talk about. Like Uncle Johnny, you know, he, he's just a little crazy. He ain't all there. He says weird things. And if you don't talk about an Uncle Johnny, you are the Uncle Johnny in your family. They're talking about you that way. But they were talking about Jesus in that way. They were looking at what he was doing and hearing what he was saying and recognized that he was often in hot water with the religious leaders of the day. And not only that, but also the Roman government was beginning to get wind of what was happening. And so Jesus's family staged an intervention. Like we have to save him from himself. He is out of his mind. You know, we look at that, and as we think about it, they were truly concerned that if Jesus continued doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying, that his life was in danger. I mean, word had already begun to spread that the religious leaders were seeking to destroy him, to kill him. 
And word had already been going around that the Roman government was getting wind of what he was doing and not too pleased with it. And so they were trying to prevent the inevitable from happening. They were trying to prevent Jesus from being in hot water. They were trying to save him from himself. You know, as I thought about that, as I thought about the group that may be concerned, thought about unbelievers, those who've not yet taken the step of trusting Jesus as their Savior, who, when they look at Jesus, and maybe that's your mindset when you think about Jesus this morning, you think about Jesus primarily as a teacher, a good teacher, or Jesus primarily as a wonderful leader. You think about all of this stuff about Jesus being the Son of God, being the Savior, and you're like, all right, let's, let, let's just save Jesus from all of that. He's just a good teacher, He's just a good leader but you're unwilling at this point to submit to him as Lord. That he is the Savior that you desperately need. He is the Son of God. You know, it's interesting when you think about that because this happens if we're not careful for us as followers of Jesus as well. You say, Pastor, how does this happen? Well, it happens when we seek to, quote unquote, save Jesus from himself, when we seek to sanitize the truth of what Jesus has said in an effort to be more palatable in the culture in which we live. Where we look around us and say, man, if we say that there is salvation only in Jesus Christ alone, people don't want to hear that. And yet that's what God's word is clear about. And there are many so-called Christians who would seek to, to not stand on the truth of God's word in an effort to sanitize Jesus for a culture that's not interested in him so that hopefully they can maybe win them over with quote-unquote love. But hear me this morning, follower of Jesus, we cannot compromise the truth of what God's word says in an effort to try and make Jesus more palatable for the culture that we live in. You say, Pastor, hang on just a second. People may hate Jesus. People may hate Christians. And the reality is that is entirely true. And Jesus knew that and told us on the front end of it, be prepared for that. But he never gives us the option of compromising the truth of who he is or what he's done or what he's said in an effort to be more palatable to the world around us. We must remain fixed and firm on the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the only Savior, that he is the Son of God and that if he said it, we must believe it and we must live in accordance with it without compromise the concerned. I want you to notice in verse 22 down through verse 30, we encounter this fourth group. These are the condemners. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. You see, the condemners were primarily interested in destroying Jesus. In fact, we see the scribes, we've already been introduced to them. We know that their primary mission is to destroy Jesus. They've already declared that. They are already at work seeking to bring that to fruition. And they begin here, it says, by saying to the crowd, to the people, that Jesus, if he's able to cast out demons, therefore he must be Satan himself. That's the only explanation, they say, for why he's able to accomplish this. But notice, Jesus doesn't give them the benefit of the doubt. In fact, he calls them to himself in verse 23. And he says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that is, Satan is divided against his demons, don't you recognize that that kingdom cannot stand? Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, and church, I know it's college football season, and I know some of you are divided houses. You got different teams that you root for, and I want you to know I'm praying for you that you'll come to the light. But notice that Jesus says here, if a house is divided, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself, he's saying to them, your logic does not make any sense whatsoever. But notice what he does. Verse 27, it's going to pull the curtain back and to demonstrate how he is able to have authority over the demons No one, he says, can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he can plunder his house. He's saying to them, I'm not Satan, but I do have authority over him and his kingdom. Why? Because he is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He has authority. And what's fascinating is when he speaks, the demons do whatever he tells them. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, the sins of all will be forgiven. Except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus says, the only sin that's not forgivable. As a pastor, that's been a question that I have had people ask me over and over and over again. What is that unforgivable sin? And I want you to know this morning 
that it's very clear in Scripture. As we look at the Old Testament, we see God's people there blaspheme the Father. We see God do incredible things, and instead of worshiping him, they worship false gods. We see even in the Gospels that there were those who blasphemed Jesus as well. In fact, to the point of crucifying him on a cross. But what does he mean here by blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's very clear that if there is one who hears the truth of who Jesus Christ is, It is a gift for you this morning to hear the reality of who Jesus is. But if you choose to reject that, if you choose not to submit to the reality of who he is, the Son of God, the Savior that you desperately need, and if that continues for your life and you die and are never a child of God, never forgiven of your sin, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Jesus is crystal clear about that for us. So you may not be a believer here this morning, and your mindset has been, I want to destroy everything about who Jesus is and those who follow him. Here's your problem this morning. You are not powerful enough. Jesus has the authority, he says, to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then I want to remind us as followers of Jesus that Jesus often transforms the lives of those people who seek to destroy him. Think about the Apostle Paul whose whole mission in life was to destroy and stamp out Christianity until he met Jesus face to face. Hear me this morning. There is no one in your life, maybe ones who seek to destroy you or seek to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. Their lives could be transformed by the gospel. Do not give up hope on them. That brings us to verse 31 through verse 35 this morning. After those four groups are described, here's the crux of the matter. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Beginning in verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother, your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here's the crux. Life transformation is only possible through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Where the rubber meets the road is with that truth. And Jesus is clear on the back end of these four groups of reminding us of the heart of the gospel message that salvation is possible for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Notice that what Jesus says about his mother and his brothers is it's those who do the will of God. 
Those are the ones who are adopted into the family of God. Remember, Jesus is not saying do enough good works and you can be a part of the family. What he's saying is, I came to do what you could never do. I came to give you life and to give it abundantly by living a perfect life that you could never live. How can you be brought into the family of God? How can you be Jesus' brother, Jesus' sister? It is only through a relationship with him. So here's the question this morning. Is there hope for the crowd? Yes, Jesus. Is there hope for the committed? Yes, Jesus. Is there hope for the concerned? Yes, Jesus. Is there hope for the condemners? Yes, Jesus. Who is this man, Jesus? That's been our question. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As our worship team makes their way back up. Maybe you have come in today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus. For you this morning, the step that you need to take is to recognize there is no hope apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But with Jesus, as you turn from your sin and trust in him alone for your salvation, your sins are forgiven and you have the opportunity of being brought into the family of God as an adopted son, an adopted daughter. You can experience life as it was intended to live. That's a step that you need to take There is no better time and no better place than right now to take that step. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus already this morning, but as we've walked through this, as you've thought about your own heart and your own thinking, maybe the Lord's brought conviction to your life. Maybe he's pointed something on your heart and reminded you of the truth of his word this morning. Would you respond in obedience? to that. Maybe it's responding in repentance. Maybe it's responding in faith. Maybe it's responding this morning in some other way, but you respond. Father, we thank you for your word. Would it pierce our hearts and change us through your Holy Spirit at work? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing? Our pastors are down front. Our altar's open.